This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by my book, Breaking Bad Faith, Exposing Myth and Violence in Popular Theology to Recover the Path of Peace. I'm Michael Camp. The book helps people break damaging beliefs that are based on myths. It exposes the big lie that God brings justice through retribution, punishment, imprisonment, the death penalty, lenient gun laws, American wars, final judgment, and eternal damnation. It's a religious crap detector. In case you're wondering, that is a theological term. The book uses sound history to reveal the love and restorative justice narratives of Jesus and the prophets. There are real-life stories, many outside Christianity, about people plotting peace rather than revenge to fight evil. Find it at Amazon.com. My name is Matthew J. DiStefano. I'm an author, a columnist for Pathios, a podcaster, social worker, a musician, and the best part of waking up, other than like a thousand things that I can think of, is listening to Keith over a second cup. Hello, welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles, and we have a very unique and special episode of the podcast today. Um, for the first time, I am joined by a special guest, and we're going to have a conversation about something that I think is really important. Um, so in this episode, I am joined by my friend, Lisa Martinez, and she has firsthand um, sort of uh, experience with um, the organization that is featured in the film Sound of Freedom. We are not going to review the movie, uh, but we are going to talk about the organization, um, some of the methods that they use to um, sort of respond to and deal with a very real problem, which is human trafficking and uh, child sexual uh, exploitation and things like that. Um, but we're going to talk about the methods used by that organization and whether they are the best way possible uh, to respond to that very real problem. And so, uh, Lisa, welcome to Second Cup with Keith. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, Keith. I'm glad to be with you. I do have my second cup, and I'm wondering <laughs> if that's okay for me to be drinking while I'm... Okay, good. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. That's the whole point. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> the second cup is very important. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it's funny. So, I've known you for a while, Lisa, and you and your husband, and um, I knew that you guys had been, I think, in right in India or something uh, mm -hmm. for a while. Mm -hmm. And I believe you were working with this organization or, or your husband was working with this organization, right? At the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I met you after that, but then I noticed when this movie came out, all the hype was going around about it. You were posting some things, um, that I thought were really important. And so that's why I invited you to come on and talk about this. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing this. And I guess maybe give us a little background about, you know, your uh, connection, you and your husband and your connection with this organization and, you know, all that before we get into the specifics. Right. So we aren't connected with OUR or Tim Ballard or anything, but we went to, in 2005, um, we were, it was shortly after um, we experienced the death of our son and we were looking for ways we had been, I had been raised in the church. We had been evangelical Christians, homeschoolers, homeschooling families, things like that for, for a couple decades. And after the death of our son, we were just really looking for ways to serve and um, help those who were suffering. So my husband, who was a lawyer, um, 
we, you know, he just started looking around for different jobs. He was working for, he had been a Marine. And um, after he got out of the Marine Corps, um, was working for a private firm, which wasn't that satisfying. And um, we together found this um, job opportunity for him with International Justice Mission. Um, the job description looked exactly like Aaron. Um, and somebody that could um, could manage, run the office in Mumbai, India. And um, it was an extensive interview process, really quite interesting. And they, one of the guys that hired us said that we seemed like we wouldn't come back in body bags. So that was, <laughs> that was wow. good. <laughs> yeah. That's and, uh... yeah, exactly. So we did literally sell everything. We had four children at the time. Youngest was one. Oldest was 11. Got all the shots that we needed. My poor kids had to sit through millions of shots. And mm. yeah, we went over, sold, like literally did, like, like, pretty much sold everything we owned and went and our families were surprised and some mm -hmm. were supportive and some were not. And, but we really felt like we were just like actually putting hands and feet to service of, of Jesus and the church, not the church, but Jesus and, you know, those suffering. And yeah, um, yeah we just felt that that was the case. Yeah. So now I, um, I ran across International Justice Mission, I think it was probably sometime in the, I want to say either late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. Um, and I don't know how long they've been around, but I, I just remember at the time I was getting really involved, uh, really excited about different social justice things that were Christian based and came across them. And, you know, just all, all I could read was their website and kind of their marketing message. And it sounded amazing, right? It's like, wow, it's like some kind of action hero uh, thing. Because as I understood it, the, the plan was to basically um, identify, you know, bars or um, um, brothels that were uh, employing child um, sex slaves, children as, as, you know, as sex slaves and uh, infiltrating them. I guess they were in, they were in um, Thailand and India and some other places like that. And um, yes, yeah, so, so a guy would go in there undercover, pretend to be a customer, scope the place out. Uh, and then they, they would come back later and raid the place and rescue the children and blah, blah, blah. And it sounded like, wow, you know, with guns and everything, you know, it just sounded like uh, some incredible thing. And so I'm just curious when, when you guys, you know, just from the outside looking in, you 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 were researching. You found this inter international justice mission. What was it about their story or their mission or what they were doing? Like what what attracted you to them? What made you think like, wow, this is something we want to be a part of? Well, first of all, we had not seen like all of the there was apparently like stuff on. So Gary Haugen started the organization. Um, it has other connections that I'm not sure if this is the, the best forum to talk about. <laughs> but um, Gary Haugen worked for the federal government. He mm. started the organization. And then, yeah, like in the early, like late 90s, early 2000s, something like that, they were 
being they were getting some marketing on like I can't remember what show it was. It was like Dateline or something like that. Wow. Where they were talking about the raids specifically in Thailand. So a lot of people knew about them. We didn't really know about that. We found through this Christian, it was this Christian lawyers organization, the job posting. And um and you know, yeah, once we started researching it and um, looking into how could my husband, who had this specific skill set um, with the Marine Corps, with, um, you know, the type of law that he wanted to focus on, which was international law, um, how could he use all of that to the benefit of others? Yeah. So, you know, the organization, it would have, it would be fair to say, which also goes to some of the points of all of this about all the statistics about this movie, Sound of Freedom, that a majority of of um, human trafficking does not have to do with sexual slavery. A majority mm. has to do with labor. Right. And so um, IJM also has had at that time, I'm not sure what it has now, but had at that time several offices around the world that focused mainly on labor and not as much sexual slavery. So um, like the other office, Chennai in India, mainly focused on labor. Mm -hmm. And um, but yeah, the office in Mumbai itself mainly, well, pretty much solely focused on the trafficking of underage girls um, into sexual slavery. Yeah. And for us, it was, you know, we had all these children and we, like I said, we suffered, we know, knew what it was to suffer and yeah. we just couldn't imagine the, the suffering of these, um, young girls against their will. Um, and yeah, and that's also to be said is that they only focused on females only. Mm. Okay. Which is, not, is half of the population. Right. So. right. Now that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't know that either. I didn't know that they mainly focused on the, the, uh, the labor side of it, which does make sense. It is the, it is the larger. Um, but I can also imagine that in the marketing, the, the, uh, the sexual part of it get probably gets way more attention and gets people exactly. more ex excited about, Oh my gosh, we have to stop this. Exactly. This is horrible. Right. Exactly. Versus the, the labor thing, you know, we know that the, the gap and a lot of other companies are using, you know, Nike and right. whatever. They're all using child child uh, labor in in yeah. Philippines and Thailand, some of the same countries, India. Yeah. Um, and that, while that does upset some people, unfortunately, it doesn't upset as many people as you would as you would like. Exactly. Yeah. Not as big as a motivator. So, exactly. So you made the leap. Um, you made this huge leap. Sold everything. Pretty much took your family, all your kids. Went to this totally you know, different country and uh, started working for the organization and just let us know a little bit like what was the reality like and what were some of the red flags that you saw as you kind of started your, you know, your relationship with this organization? Yeah. Again, for me, I, um, you know, I was mom to all my sons there pretty much just trying to make sure my family is doing well, thriving. My son's are not getting bit by mosquitoes that have malaria, you know, like just like really trying to live. And, um, but, and also IJM, and I, which I really think was a really good move, wanted to very ethically approach 
our role there in that there was a previous director there whose wife was very, was not the employee and who's, um, was very, very extremely involved in the workings of the office and the politics of the office and actually kind of took it a direction that wasn't helpful, not only for the victims, but also the organization as a whole. So when we got there, the headquarters was trying to be very specific with us, had a lot of discussions with us that Aaron was the employee, that there was a line and that I could be involved but in ways of support and not ways of um, of work. And I was totally, I, I mean, I thought that was a valid um, idea and, and that's how I approached it. The, the aspects of support that I could do were supporting the office, the, you know, kind of making, um, making it better for a lot of the um, interns and things like that were, that were coming over for the year. And then also, I had the freedom to visit the um, aftercare organization. So the aftercare. So here's how it works in India, um, in Mumbai. Sorry, um, the raids didn't necessarily go down all the time, as you had said. What mainly happened is that they would have investigators who had some ideas about. Um, the workings of the brothel, mainly a brothel area, mainly a region, like a little specific kind of borough, so to speak, within Mumbai. And then they would be, have connections with these brothels. Then they would set up um, in these connections with these brothels for the investigators who were internationals. Um, they would set up, you know, times that they would visit that they were interested in young, younger um, prostitutes. And so the brothel owners would kind of, you know, they would make this plan. There was um, a need to work with local police. IJM was not there then. I'm not sure what it's like now. As an anti-trafficking organization then, it was there as a non-governmental organization because it had no jurisdiction to work um, legally oh. within India to do this work. Oh, because it was, I know. <laughs> Gee, that's something maybe you could have known that before. <laughs> we're not really supposed to be here doing this, but we're going to be doing well, this. Yeah. I mean, we did know that. And I'm sure you know, Keith, from our shared background there were so many things of, oh, people taking Bibles into China. Yes. And, oh, yes. and, and I had friends who were missionaries in China and fundraising as missionaries in China, but saying they were there for uh, teaching English or, right. or creating a business or whatever. Um, yeah. And that's commonly done. I don't know if it's still commonly done, but probably. And so, yeah, there's there's this kind of like undercover agent, kind of like secret agent thing, right? Where you you have a cover, and you're right. there under false pretenses. And if the government catches you, you will be. It's you know, it's so there's a bit of that spy thing going on, like Christian spying going on, right? That's yeah. and and so you justify some of these things, like yeah, we're legally not supposed to be here. We're not supposed to be doing what we're doing. 
but we're doing it for Jesus. It's important. So we're going to mm -hmm. just uh, look the other way and go ahead and do it anyway. Right. And there's ways around it. And there's, yeah. there were connections that they had and, you know, in the end it was legal and um, business visas, et cetera. Aaron had a business visa. My husband had a business visa and we had tourist visas that we had to go out yeah. of the country every six months to renew. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we were there under those auspices of that. And so this work, the reason I'm talking about this is because the investigators were Indian nationals who would connect with the brothels. The police, India has a certain way of operating mm. that it's been operating for a long time and especially had to learn to operate under the, you know, several hundred years of the British Raj, the right. colonialism. So, yeah. um, so people often say, well, India is so corrupt. Sometimes that's a bit of a, um, you know, kind of a, a cultural judgment and yeah. in its right, but that's also ignoring a lot of corruption that's happening here in the United States. I was going to say, we're just as corrupt. We just call it something else. As we else. can see today, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I won't take it in that direction. But, yeah. Um, so the idea that police, the police are being paid under the table by brothel owners for protection is not something that's, like, shocking. It really isn't. The, right. the police often get a take. And so what would have to happen is that the police, I, you know, I'm not going to say I know exactly how they were notified, but police were notified to shut down, to not come there at that time and not offer protection at that time. And so then um, IJM's operatives, which were the people that were trained in you know, rescuing the girls would come in, you know, after the investigators set up the plan, the operatives would come in and rescue the girls. They were trained in security, et cetera. Again, mainly Indian nationals. And, um, and then very rarely did my husband and or other Westerners participate themselves in the raid, which is another reason I had such problems with sound of freedom. Um, very, very rarely because of the simple fact that everybody be like, what, what are all these white guys doing here right now? And what are they doing? And it would be passed around and then officials would be notified. And then IJM would, they'd find out right away that IJM was there under the wrong auspices, you know? So anyway, so yeah, they would, that's the way it would normally be done. Um, and then they'd rescue the girls, um, take the girls again. I want to emphasize this point and that, you know, if we could talk about that, this further as we go on, I want to emphasize their, People are coming and taking these girls again against their will. Yes, they're rescuing them. And yes, they shouldn't be being raped all day long. 
but I want to kind of inhabit the perspective of these young women that are trying to survive and maybe have figured out a way to survive in the place that they are that were taken from their homes and or sold by their family into this situation. And then a bunch of new people after they've kind of settled and settled themselves to what they're doing, made connections, a bunch of new people come in and say, we're taking you away from this and you're going, we're rescuing you. Right. It's not so, yeah. all the, yeah. All yeah, ways. it's, yeah, sorry. Yeah. It's like, um, yeah, we're coming in uh, as happens a lot, right? We're the, we're the great white savior. We see the problem. We're going to, we're going to fix it. And we're, we have the solution. We're coming in as outsiders um, we're rescuing these girls, as you said, and, and even though it is horrible, what, what they're going through and what they're doing, um, if you interviewed some of the girls, they may not be like, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. They're, they're kind of like, well, it's life, right? Uh, I'm looking on the bright side. This is providing for me. And, and, and you know what I mean? So they, they may not be like, yes, please rescue me. Um, but we're going to rescue them anyway. Right. One thing that's never talked about by many of these organizations, the recidivism rate of girls that are rescued out of these situations that go back to their brothels, that go back to their rapists. And that aspect needs to be understood and not ignored. Um, and, and that's why I have a little bit more connection with that side because I really connected with the aftercare people, really connected with a lot of these young women in the later stages and listen to a lot of stories. Yeah. of You just never know what the truth is. Yeah. <laughs> you just never know. I, when I would come in and talk with these young women, look at me, I'm not Indian. I'm white American. I am being brought in by other people that are with the organization. What stories am I going to be told? Am I going to be told, listen, you've taken away my autonomy. I really don't like being here. In fact, some really untoward things are happening here. And I can't tell you about it. And they're not going to tell me those things. They're going to be like, yay, so glad you're here. Welcome. And I'm not going to necessarily hear the truth. I'm not saying I know what the truth is in every circumstance. All I, all I can say is I know some stories, several stories of young women that went back to this, this uh, yeah, their, their situations. Yeah. Mainly because they felt like their autonomy was being taken away from them again. Yeah, yeah. So that and that's something that too I think that's worth discussing as well because like I, I do I have heard since um, since the movies come out and I've you know read some articles about this not just this organization but others that do similar kinds of things um, about what you're talking about. Like so it, the focus is on sort of the solution, which is. We must go in. We must rescue these girls. We must get them out of the situation at all costs. If we have to, we'll you know this big raid with you know guns blazing and whatever. Like it's uh, like this big Hollywood movie, which of course that's why I made a movie about it. <laughs> so so we you know so the focus is all on that. But um, is there as much 
focus or enough focus on now that we've rescued these girls, now what do we do? Is there education? Is there something to get to, to give them a way of life that um, helps them to provide for themselves without having to go back to the brothel again? Um, you know, those things that kind of reintegrate them into society and things like that. Is there a, is there a real solution after the big awesome raid happens? Um, and I think that's my, my question and my concern. So, I, I have to give credit where credit is due. There were a lot of people thinking through that in the late Good. 2000s, late aughts, whatever you call it. Um, a lot of people thinking through that. A lot of people thinking through how not to re-traumatize, re-victimize these young women. There was a lot of people thinking about that and arguments being had around that at that time. And we had a special aftercare coordinator who I dearly love that was there at the time, a woman who had a master's social work um, over there that really tried to organize some things, some other masters of social work, Indian national women, amazing work they were doing at the time, really trying to figure that this all out. And I, um, I wish I could have them with me because they could speak so much better to all of this than I could. They just gave of their time, gave of their energy, really thought through how to do this for these women in an ethical, supportive, and yeah, uh, can help them to continue to find a life um, to support themselves, to support often their children that were born in the brothels. I'm sure you maybe have seen that documentary. And um, just a lot of people that were doing it. It's just that the tension that is gotten for the rescues, the money that is raised for the rescues. We, I sat in on a um, discussion one time, and obviously I'm not going to say who it was with, but with a large donor, a representative of a large donor, um, putting pressure on my husband saying, we just care about numbers. What are the numbers? How many girls are you rescuing? How many girls are you rescuing? How many girls? We just need the numbers. We can go back to the the donors, give the numbers, and all is good. My whole question was, yeah, but what about what about recidivism? What about them running back? Yeah, you might have rescued this many. How many went back? And why? Why did they go back? And how many how many of those rescues this time are, are the same rescues from last time? Absolutely. How many times are you going to rescue the same girl? Yeah, absolutely. And how are you contributing to the overall market by sending in people to these brothels over and over again, saying, we want these girls, we want these girls. And then the brothel owners go, you know, I hear this brothel over here is wanting all these young girls. I don't know why they keep wanting all these young girls. We need to get more young girls in here. It's a, it's a market. And how yeah. many times are these organizations contributing to the supply and demand? Right. And when there's money involved, like you're talking about, and where the incentive is, you know, you, you have to, the goal then is like, hey, if you want to keep the money coming, um, you have to keep rescuing more and more girls. And so then it almost becomes like, what else matters, right? Uh, let's just keep rescuing these girls over and over again because we'll keep getting the funding. Um, yeah. But at the, in, in the long run, are you really helping these girls? Right. And I I think that would be my concern. It, 
it's a, such a valid concern. And again, Keith, that's what it's so funny and like criticizing the movie Sound of Freedom and then like, you know, having this discussion, you just get accused of, well, you must not, you must love, you know, trafficking of young girls then and young girls being sold against their will. I mean, obviously not because that's why we were there for three years. Um, but also you can't solve a problem without, you know, as a therapist, <laughs> which I am now, you can't solve a problem without looking at it realistically. And you have to look at, at it realistically. Otherwise it won't go away. And I just was, I just saw a lot behind the curtain while we were there of, again, even in the midst of awesome people, awesome work, a lot of, a lot of things that made me wonder whether this is just perpetuating the problem rather than actually offering a solution. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, that, again, that's that, that's what is so important, because, like, again, I, I, I want to affirm that I do see and we both do see that um, this is a problem. Right. There is a there is a problem of Absolutely. young girls and young boys um, either being sold into slavery or being by their sometimes even by their parents. That does happen because right. the, the the family can't afford to take care of them. And they figure, well, at least a my kid will have a place. That happens. Yes. A lot of times. That happens. Yes. Yes. I, that's exactly right. And, yeah. <laughs> and so even in the, even on the side of like, the, let's say the labor side of things. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, and I think it's a valid thing. You know, we look at like things like Foxconn, you know, which is, you know, this uh, company that uh, Apple contracts with in China, that uses child labor to create iPhones and, uh, and iPads and all that stuff and computers. Um, and we say, Oh my gosh, that's horrible. You know, we should shut that down. We should stop that immediately. But again, without understanding the situation, um, like the poverty in some of these areas is so bad, it's actually a wonderful thing that at least the the family has an income. These these people have a job, right? And yes, we could say it's not a twelve year old shouldn't be working in a factory like that. And sure, I would agree. That's ideally that isn't a good thing. But also understand that by shutting that down and and basically firing or laying off or quote unquote rescuing those those children from child labor like that they're now homeless no job begging on the street and guess what they probably turned to prostitution so like solving these problems it's not this quick and easy thing um it's very complicated right and then and then not and then trying to solve this problem as you were talking about with the brothels and things again it's not an easy uh not an easy thing to do to solve this problem but I think, I, I don't know, uh, I think we can kind of see maybe what isn't working. And I think it would seem that, it, that, that this is almost like we're creating a uh, revolving door by focusing on the raid kind of thing. And, and I'm assuming that's one of your problems with the, like the way the film was portraying it. And, oh. and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Keith. I mean, uh, it, it just, when we came back from India, there was, I mean, there's so much, gosh, we could have like a five hour conversation, but there's so much, so many things that I was privy to um, about how going about it this way, while it is a method, a way to go about it, a way to try to help, is it the best way? And are there problems that are being created along the way? And are the people that are being rescued really being rescued? I mean, 
even one of the leaders of the organization at the time because they had to make a staffing change in um, Thailand <laughs> said that the kind of coming the, the reasoning of the staffing change was that um, child sex trafficking in Thailand, this was 2007, had been solved. Oh, well, oh, good. Well, good. <laughs> so we don't have to worry about that anymore. Woo, but, so glad. <laughs> but like things like that were just thrown out and done and said, and again, I don't want to cover up the the, the just the really good-hearted people that were really talented, my husband inclu included, that really had great intentions um, for doing this work and actually did a lot of incredible work. It's just that, um, yeah, I came back with the viewpoint that there are so many more systemic changes that need to happen for this kind of work to be done. And I just don't agree with the incredible marketing that's being done around not only at JM, um, but other organizations. I can't tell you how many people would come up to us, you know, who found out we worked with IJM. And I still get that today. You all, oh, really? You worked with IJM? So how wonderful you are, you know, and it's like, no, yeah, no, I mean, I, we have this like, yeah, definitely white savior complex that has infected a lot of Christianity for the last, I don't know, hundred years or whatever, but, and this was part of it. And so coming back and saying, I, we need systemic changes and telling that to some friends, especially friends who were supportive of IJM, they weren't happy with hearing me say that. They wanted me to say, oh, this is just, I'm so grateful for my experience with it, which I am. It really opened my eyes to a lot. Of, I, I always say that India taught me more than I ever contributed to that country. And I really tried to help out a lot, but boy, that, that country humbled me and, and that experience humbled me. Um, and, and that should be the right, in my opinion, the right viewpoint. When you engage with this work, you should be coming back humbled from it saying, wow, I really tried the best. But here's what I learned and here's what, how we got to change this. And here's how we can go forward in a way that can reduce um, human trafficking around the world. So I came back with those ideas and like nobody, was to, nobody wanted to hear it. They wanted the story. They wanted the myth. They wanted it to continue that I'm giving money to this organization they're rescuing girls. The girls are happy. They're running in the fields. They're not being raped again. And their life is just, they have a job and life is just wonderful. And if we do this enough times, we'll solve it worldwide. And it's a myth. It, and I was trying to tell people, this is a myth. There's systemic things that needs to change. Governments need to be involved. And that's just the fact. And people didn't want to hear that. And so, so like, yeah, I, I mean, we, 
left that life behind and made a new life in the United States after coming back. And we really did. There was a lot that was difficult. I, I having gone to India after the loss of a child and experienced all of this and not dealing with my own trauma. I had post-traumatic stress disorder from the loss of my own son and a lot of things in India kind of deepened that. And we came back kind of, we didn't come back in body bags, but thank God. But we, um, there was a lot in shambles when we came back. And honestly, honestly, very honestly, there were people here and there who helped me and I'm so grateful for their help and helped us as a family. But there wasn't a whole lot of support from the people that put us over there. Um, and so when we came back, we just put our lives back together. And um, whenever we had to say we were with IJM, you know, listen to everybody go, wow, and say, yeah, and then move on. And, and then so everything was pretty fine. And that's pretty much the way I've I've kind of looked at it. And then when I went through my major deconstruction, started really looking at a lot of things from different perspectives, learning a lot about it. And then, yeah. And then, you know, my own, I like, yeah, I'm just now completing my master's in clinical mental health counseling and counseling clients and things like that. And then this movie comes out and so many of my former relationships and people that I really respect and love or like, this is amazing. He's done amazing work. And I had already known some of the background of Tim Ballard and OUR and um, from a couple of years previously. And I was floored. I was, I was floored that people couldn't see through this, that this was a fabricated myth. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know, here's the thing though. I mean, and this is something that I kind of see it as a trend as well. Uh, uh, to me, a very disturbing trend. Um, um, because before this movie, the, the sound of freedom, um, which I would call Christian propaganda. Um, there was another great Christian propaganda film called the Jesus revolution, which was, uh, and see, I have experience with, uh, the vineyard movement. I knew about Lonnie Frisbee, that he was gay from the beginning. Um, and that this was something that he struggled with the entire time. Um, the way those leaders from Calvary Chapel and Vineyard um, sort of benefited from Frisbee's gift, and but then kicked him to the curb as soon as um, it was obvious that he was gay, and then he had AIDS, and then you know he was he was banished and and ignored and erased. And so th that's the real story of Jesus Revolution. But then you see the movie, and it's like nope, none of that's mentioned. Um, it's this candy coated it's it's a complete complete fantasy it's a fabrication it is not at all what happened um and it makes me really angry because again i, I see a lot of friends of mine posting about 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 the sound of freedom movie and about the jesus revolution movie oh it's so amazing it's so incredible you got to see it and and so here's what i see as the problem with it is this if you're oblivious to the actual story I'm sure those movies are really entertaining. I'm sure you're like, man, that is so beautiful and so wonderful. And yeah, it is because they've they've taken, you know, they've they've smoothed off all the rough edges, and they've made sure you only hear one kind of version of this story. And of course, that story is great because they wrote it to be great, right? It's it's acted and directed and produced to be really beautiful and heartwarming and everything. But 
that, but the danger is when it says at the beginning, you know, based on a true story, well, it really, it's very loosely based on a true story. And they would never make the, the real movie of the real story because that market, these Christian, you know, this Christian evangelical market would absolutely not want to see a movie about a gay man that leads a, the, the Jesus movement in the, in, you know, in the 60s or about an organization that goes in with guns blazing and basically just creates, perpetuates a revolving door problem that doesn't really solve it, but it raises a lot of money, right? They don't want, that, that's not the movie they want to see. And that's exactly what I was saying about what we were participating in. IJM and other organizations like it, I know people that have created organizations because they didn't have a job. And so they made us anti-trafficking organization. And then they started making a lot of money because they were good marketers. Like those, if you're a good marketer and, and this is how IJM had a, a difficulty because a lot of the times women's stories were being shared. Women were being brought to the United States to share their story and their faces were being shown. There were two kind of factions within IJM at the time. I, again, I don't know what it's like now. At the time, there were two factions of people saying, we've just got to do whatever we can to raise the money because this is such a problem. And the other faction saying, you are re-traumatizing these women by having them repeat these stories, but only parts of the stories that you want them to repeat and showing their faces and raising money off of their backs. The thing is, is that I, um, trying to think of a really good way to say it. There's just the lifestyle that a lot of these rescued women are being rescued out of and going into living is not equal to the lifestyle that some of the people that are doing the work in the United States and have never gone abroad are living. There's a lot of money being made off of it. Again, they gave money for my kids to go to school while we were over there at a, at a Western school. So I kind of feel, you know, like, Hey, I am, I was part of it. I'm trying to say that I, don't consider myself separate from it, which is why I'm speaking up now, <laughs> which is why I don't want to sit back and say, this is a good thing. Yeah. You know, some girls are going to be rescued. No, where is the money going to who, how are they living? How are the people? How's Tim Ballard? How is he living? What's his net worth? Um, what are the people living like who are making a bunch of off of this movie and off of this organization is that money going to the people that need the help yeah a little bit of it might be going to them great but shouldn't a majority of it be going to them and and the people that are giving the money are being led to believe even though most likely they're intelligent people that know in the end that well people have to live their life you know um People who are going to the movie are being led to believe that this money is being go is going to releasing people from sexual slavery. And is it? Is it? In my experience, what I saw, some of it is. A lot of it is not. So is that being talked about? And yeah, the whole thing about um <laughs> the you know, Tim Ballard was Department of Homeland Security. He, 
my husband now works for the federal government and I can't say who, <laughs> but, um, uh, the position that Tim Ballard had, there's no way that he would have been doing what they report in the movie that he was doing. There's no way that, that there's no way. Um, and, and uh, I've talked to people who are like, yeah, that's just poppycock. It's just silly. But everybody's being led to believe, okay, based on a true story, I can't tell you how many people I know that have posted, this is a true story. They don't say based on. This is the truth. Uh, Donald Trump said it was a documentary. I mean, uh, it's, I just want my people, my former people, my culture to wake up and, you know, truth we said was very important and with the truth, you'd be set free. So let's, again, back to my point about like with therapy, the only way that you can begin to change is to look at things with in reality, you know, and the actual things that are happening. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is, I think, what you're right. That's what needs to happen is we have to be willing to look through the propaganda and the hype and be honest and, and be willing to um, to accept the truth, even if it isn't entertaining or exciting or, you know, wonderful and beautiful. Um, if Because if we're not going to be able to solve this problem otherwise. And, and if we really do say we care about the problem, this global problem, of uh, human trafficking and, and especially with children, then solving that problem is only going to happen if we're willing to really look hard at the actual problem and then really, really get serious about what's going to really solve it and fix it. Because what we're doing now is not fixing it. It's just creating an income stream for a handful of people, um, but it's not really solving the problem. And not at all. And not at all. And and that's what we, I don't know. I mean, I still consider myself a Christian and that's what we as Christians should be doing with what we've been given. And according to what we believe, you know, is giving our money, our time, our resources, our intelligence to um, love others and create, um, create good around them in ways that are really contributing to the good you know, and not just, yeah, not just perpetuating another version of the East India Company, you know. That's right. Mm, wow. That's exactly right. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time and sharing, being vulnerable and transparent and sharing your experience and your story. Um, I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Keith. Glad to do it. Yeah. And thank you all for listening to Second Cup with Keith. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. Please like and share if you think this episode would help someone. Uh, please share it with them as well. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much.